Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Slide Deck podcast by 180 Degrees Consulting Helsinki. I am Elisabeth Björkman, your host today, and with me is special guest Maria Mekri, the Executive Director of SaferGlow. Hi and welcome, Maria. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you make a short introduction about yourself? My name is Maria Meklia. I'm the executive director of SaferGlobe. SaferGlobe is a peace and security think tank which produces both knowledge and tools to bring sustainable peace and security as well. I like to start off with a fun icebreaker question. If you were a dog, what dog breed would you be? I was going to say that that's a difficult question, but actually it's not. I just don't know what the real name of the breed is, but I would be an American Indian singing dog. They're very rare in the world. They're extremely clever. They look like some kind of a combination of a coyote and wolf, but also have very strong personalities and tend to do what they like. What is your background? I have a very versatile background, which is one of the reasons why I can have my current position. There's kind of three parts to it. The first is that I have a very strong background academically in international relations and peace and conflict studies from Cambridge University before that, Brandeis University, and I've done a lot of research and also quite a lot of teaching, both supervising political science and international relations, writing articles and so on and so forth. So that's kind of one bucket. The second bucket is that I am actually an MBA and I run an organization. So I calculate budgets, create strategies, think about HR and contracts for our employees. I am actually in that way, I'm, I'm quite close to being a manager of a small company. All of those responsibilities come to me. And then the third part is that I'm crisis management trained. I've worked in Liberia. I've also been trained in peace negotiations and peace mediation. And that's the kind of practical part of doing peace. Unless you've been in fragile contexts and understand how people operate in them, or actually how difficult it is to understand how people operate in them, it's very challenging to have this kind of work because it's easy to come up with solutions from afar that don't then work in those contexts. And so what we try to do is always find local partners, support local knowledge, local peace building. And that's only possible if you're kind of credible in that sphere as well. Those are the three different things I have. This combination is perfectly suitable for this role and perhaps not that many other roles in Finland. How did you end up at Safer Globe? I met the founder, Jarmo, at an event. Well, there were two founding members, Jarmo and Kalevi. And I met Jarmo in 2011. So this was a few months after Safer Globe was founded. And there was a project and he was desperate to find someone with basically my profile. And I was desperate to find some kind of sensible employment. The organization was very new. The field was very new. And so I have been very central to both the development of the organization, of course. But also, I think we have managed to help develop the field a bit in Finland too. Sefa Globe is a think tank. Can you explain what that means? A think tank in Finland and a think tank internationally are slightly different. A think tank in Finland is an association-based research entity that typically creates policy-relevant research. That means that we don't do academic research. In academic research, you spend years and you create documents which can be very long, create books. What we do is we're looking at the situation as it is now 
And then we try to create knowledge that can be used in this situation. Internationally, think tanks in the field of international relations are basically second main actor that you've got governments and international government mental organizations, and then typically think tanks, and then universities are a little bit on the periphery more. Think tanks and governments and international governmental organizations have strong revolving doors. Think tanks are international the employers of, for example, retired diplomats and retired UN officials. That means that often think tanks can be very influential in decision-making processes and can create the kind of discussions that governments cannot Governments are always promoting their own country and their own state, which is valuable, but that doesn't necessarily relate to creating expertise on arms control policies of Europe, for example, where you need to develop a whole another kind of level of expertise. With this kind of specific topics, it's not possible to have an expert in each foreign ministry who would spend decades doing it. Uh, most think tankers go from one job to another and then create a very strong personal profile in an, a personal network, which they also bring with them. What do you do at Safer Globe? How does a normal working day look for you? My normal working days don't exist. It ranges from discussions with government officials, different organizations, to discussions with, uh, I just had a meeting with representatives from Ethiopia, South Sudan, and Somalia. And here I was in Finland. Quite a lot of my work is now to do with fundraising, budgeting. Finland is going through kind of a change just in general from being very state-funded to being much more private-funded for activities such as ours. But these private funding mechanisms don't really exist. It's a huge transformation that's a structural transformation that's going on for organizations, which is something that I'm working on as well trying to figure out how we can both create expertise, how we can employ more people, how we can figure out what is the expertise that's needed for the future and how we can grow as an organization. Media calls me occasionally. I'm interviewed. We make statements to the parliament. There's a lot of coordination associated with those. And I am also an expert myself. So I actually do quite a lot of knowledge creation myself too. Technology, business, and triple nexus, this kind of integration are kind of what I focus on most myself. Do you have an ongoing research project you are particularly passionate about? I'm staying silent because there is no clear answer to that. The work that we do is often quite long-winded and there's a lot of impact that you see after years and it's not research project per se that I'm happiest about. Lately I have been very happy to notice that there's more interest in arms control, that we are finding new experts who are actually looking at arms control, also European Union arms control. We had very little expertise in arms control for a while, and that's growing and interest is growing, and there are more young people who are looking at arms control. That's something I'm very happy about. I'm also happy about just the fact that peace is being noticed a bit more as the foundation of our stable society. In the early years of Safer Globe, there was a lot of discussion we had to have about how basically how I am not a hippie. 
And people were very surprised about how enthusiastic I was with, for example, collaborating with companies, because their idea was that peace is for demonstrations where you go and say, we want peace, we want peace. Then they see me where I say, and I have had a really exciting discussion with investors on banking mechanisms in fragile contexts, and the two realities just didn't meet. And the company side of things, which was just alien in the conversation, it it really was not featured. And that has now changed quite dramatically. So we're looking at all societal functions and building peace through all societal functions and also creating a viable business sector in fragile and conflict zone areas. How do you talk about peace and security to people who have never experienced the absence of peace? See, that's not true, though. And it's not true because if we think about peace, it's really a kind of grayscale. So often we think about conflict and war, and that's the dark gray to black end of the scale. And then we think that since we are somewhere in the light gray zone, that we have peace. But we don't. We are somewhere in the light gray zone. And whether we are slightly lighter gray or slightly darker grays, those are the questions that Finland grapples with. And to be perfectly white, so to have that kind of perfect peace means that we should have no violence And there should be no fear of violence. So those two combined, this is not the situation we're in. We both see violence on an individual level, and there is a constant threat of violence on a kind of a higher up level. We are talking about potential gang activity in Finland, more illegal weapons being brought to Finland, increased family violence through the COVID situation, And of course, our geopolitical situation is challenging as well. We may not have experienced war, but we certainly haven't experienced peace either. The kind of perfect peace where we're liberated to live our lives freely without fear or violence. To be fair, this may be a utopia. We as human beings may not be ready for this utopia. So the work that we do is looking at how we can be the lightest gray that we can be. If we can't reach that perfect piece, perhaps we can reach something that's as close to that as we can. But Finland too, we are one of the best in the class. But as a globe, the class is not doing very well. Being the best in the class doesn't mean that we're brilliant. We're just the best in the class. And as the best in the class, one of the things that I would very much like Finland to do is start looking at ways and mechanisms that we can make the top of the class even better still. If we can figure out ways that our society can be even more peaceful, then perhaps we can show some ways for others as well. Those mechanisms of peacefulness The things that really interest me are these small everyday things that can be done. Often when Finland talks about peace, we talk about how we have a very high level of education, how wealthy we are, how egalitarian. None of these things are things that can be exported easily or maybe not even at all to some place like Somalia. Their context is so different, their cultural. So to say to Somalia, look, we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world and we're very well educated, so why don't you do the same is a bit flippant. But then there are a lot of activities that people are doing here on a grassroots level and a lot of innovation that's happening that we don't even necessarily notice because it's such a part of how we operate. Uh, From local policing and creating trust in local 
local policing, that's really interesting. The work that's being done with disenfranchised youth, that's also really interesting. There's actually quite a few little things that I'm keeping my ear open for to see how these things are panning out. What I am not keeping my ears open for, though, are the kind of peace building exercises that basically are just about you doing things that are nice. So, so sometimes you hear people saying that, I gave cake to the granny next door, and so I'm creating peace. I would question that because the granny next door is unlikely to come and beat you up. If you're not dealing with that fear, you're creating positivity in the society, certainly, and being charitable, and that's just good. But I'm not sure how much it then impacts the peacefulness, because with peace, you really have to deal with people you don't like, and they're not nice. Peace processes are difficult, and the people you deal with most of the time are just not nice. Occasionally, there are fantastic champions of peace who are just incredibly brave, and you just think, wow, these people are the best that humanity has. But then you also meet with very unsavory characters. I, for example, have shaken hands with a mass murderer and a terrorist, both a mass murderer and a terrorist. The terrorist I knew was a terrorist, former terrorist, but the mass murderer I didn't realize was a mass murderer until I read a book in Finland and I had this very crazy moment in a Finnish library where I went, oh my god, I have shaken hands with a confirmed mass murderer. That was kind of exciting. What do you think is the most important individual in Finland can do for both peace in Finland and maybe globally? At the moment, the most important things are two. One is that we all recognize that we all have our own part to play in creating stability in our society and in other societies. What we're really trying hard to grow are not just peace experts like myself, but experts in other areas who have an interest also in peace. Because peace impacts all areas of society, things like having someone who's excited about satellite image algorithms and potential of using algorithms to create analysis for peace building. These are the kind of thing people that I'm interested and excited about But also people who have expertise in communications, marketing, all of this is stuff that we're really desperate to use and we're really trying to find because we need to change the image of peace to something that's active and that you build rather than being passive and something that just happens. And then just understanding that our societal foundation is built on trust and stability. If we can't function as a society somehow, everything else we do is doomed. That sounded really horribly negative. I'm sorry about using such strong words. But if we think about the future of our planet, the two main challenges are climate change, where we have a whole ecosystem of people looking at companies, consultants, NGOs, you name it, in climate. You've got the industries, you've got the law, you've got the standards. And so although climate change may be irreversible and is a huge challenge, you have a lot of people working on it and a lot of expertise that's being created, which to me seems extremely hopeful and good. But especially when we look at development and innovation in peace, looking at how can we do peace better and the interest that has internationally 
it's just peanuts. And if we look at the humongous money flows that are going into the arms trade and the defense trade, which is now, depending on how you calculate, but in the teens of trillions of US dollars, if you take all of the UN peacekeeping and EU crisis management and African Union, you get to some tiny percentage of that. And then if you look at how much of that is actually looking at the development and innovation. So how can we do peace better? How can we go from just freezing a situation to developing and reducing conflict? Then again, you get this tiny, tiny sliver of people who are actually looking at that. I mean, that's why I'm working in this field, because that to me is is incredibly scary that we have this future where we're clearly going to face challenges. We are not going to be able to put our best foot forward as humanity unless we deal with conflict. And if we look at global challenges, most all of them are fueled with conflict, fueled by, fueled with. Climate change is also fueled by conflict. I wish that we would have more understanding of how really vital peace actually is to our globe and ourselves, and not just in terms of speeches. Actually, what I would like is euros and dollars. So I hear the speeches and I too hang out at the House of the Estates regularly and, and being at palaces in Brussels, but you really have to start putting your your money where where your mouth is. So you really, really have to start looking at the euros and the budget lines. How do you keep yourself from falling into a pessimistic doom and gloom thinking about how little is done? Or are you generally optimistic about future peace? We work with doom and gloom. And things that we deal with often range from very negative to extremely negative. When you look at what people do to each other, the suffering it causes, how many people are impacted by conflict, how civilians are impacted by conflict, it is horrendous. And that cannot be mitigated and it shouldn't be mitigated. So that's one part. So you deal with doom and gloom. But then those of us in the field, uh, we kind of compartmentalize. And I think that's maybe a skill that you need to have in many sectors, but certainly in ours, which is that on the one hand, you see the doom and the gloom and also your inability sometimes to actually influence the large scale picture. If we're looking at long term conflicts that have been ongoing for decades or even centuries, your little intervention is unlikely to do much. Most conflicts also have very strong incentives. They create a lot of wealth and money to certain organizations or certain people. International crime has grown extensively and is developing and conflict areas are the perfect places for international organized crime to thrive. For example, West Africa is being used for drug trade. And these organizations are just incredible in their efficiency, in the amount of money. When I was in Liberia, one of the things that really shocked me, I was actually investigating this for years, but one of the mysteries in Liberia was that it's a rainforested country and some of the inner areas were so difficult to access that the Red Cross wasn't even able to fly a helicopter and drop water bottles and drop food 
for the internally displaced people who were in the Liberian rainforest and the road services well like the road network was all destroyed and so on there was a lot of time that it was actually impossible to reach the people who were in these difficult to reach areas and at the same time Liberia was one of the main countries for illegal logging these rainforests were being cut I just thought, well, how? How are you able to, if the Red Cross can't even fly a helicopter to drop some basic supplies, how is it possible to bring these huge rainforest trees in any number that makes it somehow business viable? How is this possible? Because you can't drive a Jeep, let alone any kind of lorry. And the most reasonable answer I got was that these illegal loggers had actually also created a water system by which they had created miles and miles of fake river so that they could float the wood away. And you just think about those, you know, that infrastructure that they're bringing the diggers to create somewhere. It's just mind boggling. So, so that part, maybe this doesn't sound possible, but so what keeps us moving is that when things are really bad, and they often are really bad, the tiniest change for the positive can make all the difference. For people who have had absolutely no hope, if you are able to bring some sliver of hope or some sliver of self-confidence, even just to listen, sometimes that can be enough. So while you can't fix the big questions, you can still do marginal little changes. And what we hope, of course, is that those marginal little changes will build up and then you change the situation eventually, which may take years or decades. But you never know, because you can also backtrack. Positive is a lot of work and the negative can happen in one night. So it doesn't require much if the place is flammable then you you strike a match and the place flames up. So there's a lot of drama, but what keeps you going is that there is a potential to truly save lives and to truly change people's lives for the better. And when you think about conflict dynamics, that's actually what we are really doing is that we are saving lives. The saving lives may come from something as having some mediation between two different parties so they understand, or having that satellite image that shows where water goes and creating some kind of, but really you're talking about saving lives. And that's kind of cool in some of our projects when I've been able to say, you can say to yourself that you have actually, that from Finland, you have actually saved lives of people. And especially for the techies, that's a rare, rare and valuable moment. And the impact, if it comes, can be phenomenal. If one was to use investment speak, we are a kind of risky investment that when you support peace, you cannot promise anything that you can just do the best you can and then you hope for the best. And if the investment is correct, then the impact is huge. You you win the lottery, you create value for that society potentially for forever. At the same time, you might just be twiddling your thumbs and not able to do much. Lately, it's been quite funny to see how much of the stuff that we did in 2013 or 2014 is now becoming relevant. Very often we're kind of five years before our time. So we start doing stuff with no funding and we develop things quite a lot with no funding and no knowledge of if we get funding. But with many themes that we're now developing, we really kind of started very early on and so now have a 
good track record and a good background and a good possibility to take things forward. What kind of people work at Safer Globe? All sorts of people. We have 11 experts and then we have the board and then we have an advisory board and then we also employ people for organizational development and communications. I guess what unifies our experts is that they both have a strong knowledge and interest of a topic and they want to change the world. So it's a kind of a they're impact driven and that's why they want to work with us in addition to potential other academic work or work in other contexts. We have peace technology experts and we have a service designer who's interested in peace and peace design. So especially with the innovation, development of innovation, we are reaching out to quite a lot of different fields and would reach out to more fields if we could. And then on the organizational side, we, like all associations, but also companies, uh, we are looking at fundraising and budgeting and strategies and communications and HR and everything else that anyone else would do. Because peace impacts every part of society, we can employ many different kinds of people, but not people who expect to have a nine to five, because that's not the kind of organization that we are or the kind of world that we live in. And that was one of the things where we were really challenged by who we could employ for a long time, because people would expect to have that kind of really, really solid work, which unfortunately in the kind of project-based situation that we live in, we really cannot offer. Here you also notice that the world has changed. I think typical students of today no longer expect to have decades-long employment and career that they once were hoping for. But rather, I think new graduates are quite used to having to juggle with various different jobs and different priorities. So funnily enough, we, we seem to have kind of blossomed there as well, because as an organization, we are an international organization, well, Finnish organization that also works internationally, but having this kind of juggle has been a part of what you do in fragile context for years. And so I think now some of the more traditional organizations are kind of struggling, whereas we're not, because that's been our bread and butter for some time. Yeah, and if any one of your listeners is, by the way, interested in working for Safer Globe or better yet, volunteering for us, then they should just get in contact with me. Where would you direct anyone who wants to learn more about peace and security? A good place is to look at our website, of course. There are lots of other organizations and fortunately, peace is both at the core of the United Nations and the European Union. So in terms of international collaboration and what that international collaboration tries to do. Peace is very much at the center. For people working in Finland, I would suggest that you start being active on social media, that you look at the kind of things that, for example, Safer Globe is following or some of the other organizations are following, and then start thinking a bit about which is your niche. So what are you actually interested in? Because the peace and security field is huge. And that's why we also employ a lot of different people, because we're now talking about everything from hate speech, cybersecurity, Facebook, Twitter, possibilities of peace building through the big social media to encouraging women startups in Somalia and everything in between from the political, legal and so I think it's important to find your own little bit 
of the peace and security field that you think is most interesting and most relevant to you and then see if is there added value and in terms of people interested in companies there is a lot of added value that you can add to the peace field so think about what is your interest what drives you and then focus on that and think about whether that has any kind of things related to peace and security perfect thank you for this very insightful discussion where can our listeners find you easiest is just to go on our website but we're also on twitter we're in a good situation currently in that we're still a bit under the radar and of course now i'm doing this kind of podcasts so we may not be under the radar very long what i mean by our good situation is that we're very well known in the field but we currently don't have the kind of mass appeal that we would get hundreds of applications like my colleagues in other organizations do. Currently, I can have this faith that if someone is interested enough to reach out to us and also to apply for our membership, then they may be people that I would be able to collaborate with. And actually, each one of our members kind of still gets quite a lot of special treatment because the field is really limited and we are excited about growing the field. But that also means that people for us, the kind of people who really reach out and who want to be active and who want to share their expertise with us are very precious. And and we try to treasure them. With us, you wouldn't be one of the 10,000 people who have sent an email that day saying, oh, I think this is cool as well. But if there is among the listeners, I think it's really, really, I'm glad to be in this podcast too, because I think for most of your listeners, they'll listen to this and they'll think, okay, that was pretty interesting, hopefully pretty interesting. And then they go about there every day. But amongst them, there might be one or two who actually become inspired and realize that this may be something that they're excited to support. And then they should definitely also just email me. Perfect. Everyone email Maria if you're yeah, interested. Don't, yeah, no 10,000 emails, but <laughs> currently I'm thinking that it's fine. And then if not, then we revisit or I revisit this policy later. Great. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you very much. And also thank you for your collaboration and cooperation. It's been great to be a partner in the 180 degrees program. We've learned a lot from you and also new insights that we wouldn't have otherwise had. It's been a really, really positive experience for us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can learn more about SaferGlobe on their website, saferglobe.fi. And so concludes the first season of the Slide Deck podcast. You can find all episodes on Spotify. Follow us at 180 Helsinki on your social media of choice to stay updated on upcoming news.